presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health, on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Your host is Dr. Bruce Bloom. What are the musculoskeletal aspects of MPS-1 and the diagnostic challenges or management considerations that need to be reviewed when treating patients? Joining me to discuss the intricate details of diagnosis and management of MPS-1 is Dr. Gregory Pastores, Associate Professor of Neurology and Pediatrics at the NYU School of Medicine in New York and Director of the Neurogenics Laboratory for the Department of Neurology at NYU. Dr. Pastores, welcome to ReachMD. Hi, Dr. Bloom. Thanks for having me. So tell us, what is MPS-1? The mucopolysaccharidosis, or MPS for short, is a group of disorders that are assigned a number based on their clinical characterization historically. MPS-1, also known in its most severe clinical expression as Hurler syndrome, is a deficiency of a lysosomal enzyme, alpha-L-iduronidase, resulting in the accumulation of an incompletely metabolized material, leading to skeletal and joint complications as a primary manifestation. And talk to us about the different subtypes of MPS-1, and how severe are they? When do they start? Although recognized in most patients by its severe clinical expression, known as the Hurler's syndrome, there are attenuated subtypes, including the Shea syndrome, the diagnosis of which is often delayed until late teens or early adulthood, and an intermediate form known as Hurler-Shea syndrome, which is expressed in early or late childhood. And so when somebody has the severe form of Hurler syndrome, how would you see it? What age would it earliest be diagnosed at? Children with Hurler syndrome present with developmental delay and other features that lead to this diagnosis, which unfortunately are not recognizable to an uninitiated individual, particularly the parents, if the disease is expressed in their first child. And what you usually encounter are dysmorphic or coarsening of the facial features, tightening of the joints, and an enlarged liver and spleen. So would a physician typically be able to diagnose this early, even though the parents might confuse it with something else? The individual signs and symptoms of MPS-1 or Hurler syndrome are nonspecific but often patients are seen by their pediatrician because of recurring ear, nose, and throat infections. So what other kinds of things is this typically confused with? Are there other diseases? Do the parents think their child has autism or some other developmental delay disease? Developmental delay in children can be associated with several disorders. What should lead to consideration of Hurler syndrome are a history of recurring upper respiratory tract illness, the presence of an inguinal hernia, the presence of dysmorphic features, including the coarsening of the hair, an enlarged tongue, and a palpably enlarged liver and spleen. Is there some kind of a genetic test for this, or is there some other kind of pathognomonic medical test that you can do, or is it typically just from the clinical manifestations? As part of the evaluation of a child suspected to have developmental delay and short stature independently and not necessarily together, one may screen for MPS by testing urine for the excess excretion of glycosaminoglycans or GAGs. It should be pointed out, however, that this test done in urine sample can be associated with a high percentage of false negative results. And so when the diagnosis remains strongly suspected, it is important to request the specific enzyme test for this disorder. 
and in MPS1, the enzyme that is deficient is known as alpha-L-idylronidase. Are there age, race, and gender differences among the patients that end up with this particular disease, MPS1? No. MPS1 is a pan-ethnic disorder, which has been described in every ethnic group. Children with Hurler's phenotype or Hurler's syndrome are often diagnosed within the first two years of life because of their dramatic clinical presentation, including developmental delay, coarsening of the facial features, and enlargement of the liver and spleen. Patients with the intermediate subtype or clinical presentation known as the Hurler-Shea phenotype are often not diagnosed until mid to late childhood. These are children who are often short for age, have tightening of the heel cords and can be noted to walk on their tippy toes or have some tightening of the joints, including the hands, and might have difficulty with manual dexterity, such as holding the pen or reaching for objects on a shelf because of the limitation in their joint range of motion. And what's the average lifespan for a patient that's diagnosed with the severe Hurler form of this disease? In children with Hurler syndrome who are not subjected to bone marrow transplantation, children often succumb to their illness within the first decade of life or by 10 years of age. And how is this disease genetically transferred or is it the result of a random mutation? MPS type 1 in its various clinical expression is an autosomal recessive disorder, which means that an individual can only be affected by inheriting the defective gene or a copy of the defective gene from each carrier parent. Parents of affected children who are carriers mean that they have one defective gene but a normal copy that can make up for the deficiency, which is why parents themselves may not show manifestations of the disease and not know that they are a carrier of this genetic trait. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Our guest today is Dr. Gregory Pastores, Associate Professor of Neurology and Pediatrics at the NYU School of Medicine in New York and Director of the Neurogenics Laboratory for the Department of Neurology at NYU. And we're talking about clinical manifestations and treatment of MPS1. So talk to us a little bit about how the disease manifests itself as the kids grow up. It can be a little bit complicated by the fact that MPS type 1 or mucopolysaccharidosis type 1 can present in three clinical forms, including a severe Hurler phenotype, an intermediate Hurler-Shea phenotype, and a Shea clinical variant. The diagnosis of the attenuated form, which in the past had been referred to as a mild form of MPS1, can be significantly delayed, particularly in the absence of a family history for this genetic disorder. Children with the intermediate Hurler-Shea and Shea variants often present with short stature and tightening of the joints, which may be noted as difficulty with ambulation or with manual dexterity. When the presentation is dominated by bone and joint complications, the children are often referred by their pediatrician or internist to a rheumatologist or orthopedic surgeon. What distinguishes the bone and joint complications seen in the MPS1 disorders is the absence of signs such as redness, swelling, and discoloration that are suggestive of an inflammatory or infectious disease process. As the MPS results from a deficiency of an enzyme and the buildup of a constituent of bone and joints known as glycosaminoglycans, the progressive deposition of this material in the bones and joints can lead to the malformation of the skeleton, 
changes in contractility or elasticity of the skin, resulting in a limitation of joint range of motion. So let's talk about the treatment of MPS-1, and let's start with the severe Hurler's form of the disease. What are the treatments that are being used right now, and what are the outcomes for the patient? Enzyme replacement therapy using Laronidase, known commercially as aldurazime, is available for augmentation or substitution in patients with MPS-1 who are deficient for the enzyme alpha-L-Iduronidase. In patients with the Hurler phenotype, hematopoietic stem cell transplantation or bone marrow transplantation is considered the preferred therapeutic option, primarily because enzyme replacement therapy does not lead to significant amounts of the enzyme crossing the blood-brain barrier. And thus, in children with Hurler syndrome, in whom there is cognitive and developmental delay, enzyme replacement therapy is not anticipated to ultimately alter prognosis. However, hematopoietic stem cell transplantation has been considered in these children prior to transplantation to reduce the procedural morbidity and mortality risk associated with hematopoietic stem cell transplantation and their post-transplant outcome. However, the use of enzyme replacement therapy in these situations remains to be more carefully examined. On the other hand, in individuals with the Hurler-Shea and Shea phenotype, because of the procedural morbidity and mortality risks associated with hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, enzyme replacement therapy is currently considered the standard of care. Enzyme replacement therapy in children and adults has been shown to result in improved physical endurance measured by the six-minute walk test and measures of pulmonary function. And it has also been associated with increased range of joint motion and improvement in growth in treated prepubertal patients. Let's talk a little bit about the hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Why is it done and what impact does it have on these patients? The rationale for the use of hematopoietic stem cell transplantation and enzyme replacement therapy, for that matter, is based on the discovery that when two cell types obtained from a patient with MPS-1 and MPS-2 are mixed in culture, is the release of the active enzyme from one cell type that is taken up by the deficient cell and vice versa. And that phenomenon is referred to as cross-metabolic correction or essentially complementation. And that is essentially what one attempts to achieve by using hematopoietic stem cells or bone marrow for transplantation. With hematopoietic stem cells, the donor cells are usually isolated from cord blood, which nowadays is isolated from the placenta or afterbirth. This is the preferred cell type to be used because they're generally immature and have a greater capacity for differentiation. Thus, it is anticipated that prior complications associated with morbidity, such as transplant rejection, are shown to be less likely when using cord blood. So essentially, with cord blood transplantation or even bone marrow transplantation, cells from a healthy, unaffected donor, when given to an affected recipient patient, can produce and secrete the enzyme, which is taken up by the affected cells of the individual with Hurler syndrome, essentially correcting the underlying metabolic defect. What's the mortality and morbidity of these allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantations on these patients? 
Unfortunately, even at the best centers with experience in hematopoietic stem cell transplantation for Hurler syndrome, it is not unusual to encounter morbidity or mortality rates up to 20%. And this can be a consequence of rejection by the graft of the recipient and also the associated increased risks for infection when one modulates the immune system so that the donor does not reject the transplant cells. Of the patients that survive, how does this impact the lives of those patients and what's the long-term outlook for them? Hematopoietic stem cell transplantation enables an extended period of survival in patients with Hurler syndrome. There can be stabilization, if not improvement, of their cognition and development and a reduced risk of cardiac-related complications and a reduction of the enlarged liver and spleen. Unfortunately, hematopoietic stem cell transplantation does not resolve the bone and joint complications associated with Hurler syndrome, and often during the course of their life, post-transplant patients end up undergoing orthopedic interventions. There's also an interest in substrate reduction therapy to treat some of these patients. Can you talk to us about that? So essentially with substrate reduction therapy, the intent is to reduce the production of the substrate so that ultimately there is less cargo, so to speak, that confronts the mutant or defective enzyme. Essentially, by trying to establish a balance between the amount of substrate that needs to be digested and the defective enzyme's capacity to digest this substrate, one hopes to achieve metabolic balance or homeostasis. This is an experimental procedure in the case of MPS with the use of such drugs as genistin, while it is a pharmacologic approach that has been demonstrated to be effective in at least one lysosomal disorder, also due to an enzyme deficiency. And in the latter case, I'm speaking of Gaucher's disease due to glucocerebrosidase deficiency and the use of miglistat, or in clinical trials, genzymes 112638. Our guest today was Dr. Gregory Pastores, Associate Professor of Neurology and Pediatrics at the NYU School of Medicine, and we've been talking about the manifestation and treatment of MPS-1. Dr. Pastores, thanks for being our guest. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals.